this morning, I'm part of a, I'm a member at uh, Faith CRC in Burlington, and I'm part of a small preaching team there, and kind of lay preachers, and just kind of learning how to deal with God's word and, and, and speak. It's been really fun, and, and one of the, over the last little while, we've been diving into the story of David, and so I got to take one of the stories of David, and um, I took the story of David and Goliath, and so that's a message I want to share with you this morning. Um, I wonder, before I pray and read scripture, James, do you mind throwing up this slide with the first quote on it for me? I just want to, Eugene Peterson has a great quote when he reflects on the story of David and Goliath, and um, yeah, this is, this is it. Um, this is what Eugene Peterson says. He says, it turns out that the David-Goliath story is as important for adults as it ever was for children. And one of the great impoverishments of many adult lives is the absence of children's stories, whether read or told or listened to. Um, growing up in the church, I think the only way that I ever heard the David and Goliath story was through children's Bible stories or in Sunday school. And this morning, we're gonna dive into uh, the story of David and Goliath. I'm gonna read it, it's a, it's a long story, but I'm gonna invite you to receive it as, as a story for you, not for kids. Uh, and there's parts of the story that you may think, hmm, I don't remember that as a kid. Um, it's a little more gruesome than what I remember, for example. So uh, we're gonna invite us just to receive this story for me. And the reason why, for me, this story's been important, I've been in a season of intense change. I just took on a new role in the denomination. There's a lot of personal stuff, hard things that's been going on in my own lives that we've been kind of navigating, my wife and I, including um, a lot of stuff with parents. Uh, my wife lost her parent, her mom recently, my own dad is dealing with cancer. So it's been a, a season kind of that's felt like battle in many ways, and this is a story that for me has been encouraging and important as kind of an anchor. And so let me pray and then we'll, we'll read this story together. God, we uh, are grateful that you are here in this place, that you are with us. And even as we just sang, there's times when we may not feel your presence. There may be times when we don't even think of your presence where we've forgotten you, you have not forgotten us, and you do not forget us. And so for that unconditional love and grace today, we want to honor you and bless you for it. Thank you that you are always speaking. And that as we open your word and as we turn to a familiar story, uh, I pray that you would speak again. That from whatever place that we enter into the story of David in this battle, may we see your goodness and strength in it. May we see our place in this story. And may we hear the appropriate challenge and invitation to put our trust in you in whatever battles we're facing now or for what may come. Bless our time of learning together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here is a story of David and Goliath from the word of God, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, 
and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, 
Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The, cir- the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. And David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. I'll stop reading there. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're in the valley of Elah. And I want to paint two pictures for you. On both sides of the valley, the two armies face each other. 
we go ahead a couple of slides, we'll just uh, go to that verse right here. Um, Saul and the Israelites assembled on uh, one side of the valley, the Philistines on the other side of the valley. So here are these two armies. And then a big man, a very large man, <laughs> yelling and swearing at the Israelite side. What's going on with all of that? And then the other picture is of a young man quietly living his life as a shepherd of his family, very intentionally growing his relationship with God and sharpening his shepherding skills. He's a teenager, likely. And there, there's a lot we can unpack in this story of David and Goliath, but I want to focus on that moment when these two key characters crash into each other. And what does it have to say about our understanding of how God works in our world and, and how God works in our lives? So this first picture is of the giant. The Philistines were a powerful people with superior technology and superior weapons. They were much stronger than the Israelites in, in every way. And they were threatening to divide the country of Israel in half. And so King Saul gathers up his armies um, and it, they meet at the Valley of Elah with each army gathered at either side of, of the valley. The Valley of Elah, you can still visit it today. If you go to the next slide, my wife and I were there with a group a few years ago. So this is us standing at the gates of one of the cities that's named, Sha'arim, kind of overlooking the valley. So you can see we're on the one hill, you can see the hill on the other. If you go to the next slide, <laughs> it was a long time ago, the pictures, uh, the pixels weren't so awesome, but you can see the valley there, my wife and I, and, and you get a sense there of, of this is the two sides and then the flat plain in between is where the armies would have come crashing into each other. But it's a standstill because no one, no one dares to rush into the valley toward the other side because it's going to put them at a disadvantage. It's always easier to fight downhill than it is to fight uphill. So you just, nobody wants to kind of take the other side. So, so to break the tie and to kind of, kind of unloose this standstill, the biggest and fiercest soldier from the Philistine army comes forward and offers, let's, okay, let's do a one-on-one -on -one battle. Go to the next slide for the verse. The best of the Philistines against the best of the Israelites. Now, Goliath, who sets up this challenge, was big. Uh, we're told, this doesn't help us very much, but we're told in the scripture that he was six cubits in a span. <laughs> now, scholars kind of try to figure out what that meant, because a cubit had kind of variable measurements, um, but we would say that he's at least six foot nine in a day and age when uh, people were shorter. So he, he was a good foot and a half, at least taller and perhaps even bigger than that, than any of the Israelites. What's interesting about him is he's one of four giants, actually, that's listed among the Philistines. And these giants were told, Goliath and his brothers were descendants of the Nephilim, who were the children of the sons of God. This is a, going back to a bit of a strange story all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, where we're told that the sons of God intermarry with the daughters of man, and their children become giants. And, and Goliath is a descendant of, 
of that kind of line. His armor is described as being um, like having scales, or having scales, which reminds you of a snake. And we're told that the iron point of his span is 600 shekels. Now, when you read the story through kind of Jewish eyes, one of the things that stands out for you is, is when Goliath is being described, the number six comes up several times. And for, for the Jewish people, when they saw that number, the number six, it was the number just short of seven, the number of perfection, and for them was symbolic of, of evil. It pointed to Satan. So Goliath, even in his description, is being described not just as an enemy of the people, he is an enemy of God. In other words, there's, there's more going on here than just a, a face-off between two human armies. The, the biblical writer is setting this up in such a way to say there's actually a cosmic spiritual battle being represented here. This giant reptile-like man hurling insults at God, hurling insults at God's people, defying the armies of God, uh, as David says, is, is how he's being described. He's the personification of evil that goes all the way back to remind us of the snake in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve and lured them away from God. So that's the one picture, Goliath. On the other side is David. David is young. Like I said, he's probably just a young teenager at this point. But he's likely had years of honing his skills in the fields as a shepherd. And he goes to King Saul and actually tells him all about this, about the fierce animals that he's had to face and to fight off to protect his dad's sheep. So he was a skilled shepherd. It's really important for us to note. More importantly, we know this from David's background, is that he was someone who had had his heart shaped by God. From earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, when uh, Samuel comes and anoints David as the future king, we know that there's something special about David's heart that sets him apart from his brothers and sets him apart from everyone else. We don't know exactly how David worked to shape his heart after God, but, but the evidence was there. And so here at the start of this story, when he walks into this situation, this standoff, he has no idea what he's getting himself into, of course. He was there on an errand to bring food to his older brothers. But then when he sees what's going on, he's just absolutely appalled. He's angry, actually. Because immediately, David is able to see Goliath for who he really is. Actually, he's the only one who seems to be able to see everything that Goliath represents. And he can't stand it. And so he asks, like, what, what's the reward for the person who takes, this guy, who takes this guy out? And of course, this embarrasses and irritates his brothers who are there in the army, and they ridicule him. I'm an oldest brother. I know how irritating little brothers can be. And this is a, a story for little brothers everywhere to cheer on and say, we, we get our due. Um, but David persists. The pesty younger brother. And the news gets to King Saul, and Saul is desperate at this point for any solution to the standoff. And so he says, all right, if you think God, you know, you and God got this, go for it. And he offers David his armor, and it, it doesn't fit, 
And David wouldn't even know how to fight with that armor anyways. He's never been trained as a soldier. So what David does is he falls back on the, all those years of being shaped in the wilderness and his skills developed there. He knows that he has what it takes to take Goliath out. He knows that God can and God will defeat this enemy, that God's on his side. And so, instead of wearing soldier's armor, he pulls out his sling. Goes to a nearby brook, pulls out five smooth stones. If the number six meant something to the Jewish people in terms of representing evil, the number five also meant something. The five books of Torah, the, the, the first foundational books of the Bible, the heart of the Jewish faith. David takes his five stones. And so now these two men face each other in the valley. They could not look or be more different from each other. And it's not just that Goliath was big, as we said. Goliath was vicious. And when he sees David come at him, and when he, when he begins to take stock of who it is that the Israelites are sending out to take him down, he's insulted and he's furious. You're going to send him? This is, this is your respect for me? You're bringing, like, this kid out? to take me on? Like, who do you think I am? And he's angry. And he turns on David, and so first he yells at the Israelites for insulting him in this way, and then he focuses on David and then just starts spewing hatred towards David. But David's undeterred. We're told that armed with his sling and stones, David doesn't kind of slink or crawl or creep his way towards Goliath kind of to protect himself. We're told he runs at Goliath. And as he's running, he loads his stone in his sling. The sling would have been kind of a long piece of leather, about, probably about this long. And he, and he starts swinging around and around and around to let it build up speed. And then just at the right moment, when it's uh, going fast enough, as he's happy with it, he lets it go. And lets that stone fly. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, uh, David and Goliath, a great little book, he writes that in David's day, a skilled slinger could kill or seriously injure a person from a distance of up to 200 meters away, 600 feet. That's how fast that stone, it was like a bullet. And that thing flew out, there's no way Goliath could even see it coming. Uh, my wife and I had a chance to go a few times to Israel and we were in, uh, just across from the Sea of Galilee in, in Jordan and we were sitting, we were kind of on this, one of Herod's building sites and then we were overlooking Again, there's a little bit of a valley, and these two shepherd boys were watching their sheep that were on a hill, there's kind of like this valley on the other side, and they were tending the sheep from there, and the way that they were controlling the sheep is that they had these, they're still doing, they had these slings, and they'd pick up these stones, and they would fire them kind of on the opposite side of where they wanted the sheep to go. So if they wanted the sheep to go left, they would just fire a stone, and it would land perfectly just on the right side of the flock, and the sheep would hear the sound and move the other way. They're completely controlling the flock, just with slings and stones. Amazing to watch. This ancient art is what David was skilled in. So he was an expert. 
with the sling. But as the story is told and the way that it's being told, there's also no doubt, as we might expect from the Bible, that God was part of it. We're told that the stone struck Goliath between the eyes. So it's a perfect shot. But here's the interesting detail that the Bible tells us. If you think, um, you just think kind of from a physical standpoint, maybe it's a bit gruesome, but imagine you're Goliath and you're leaning forward and you take a shot and right in the forehead, which way will you fall? You, it, will, it will push you back, you, you'll, fall, you'll fall backwards. But the Bible tells us Goliath falls forwards. Isn't that interesting? Why would the Bible include that detail? And, and maybe it's almost like Goliath in his death is submitting himself before David. Or even better, in his last living action, Goliath bows down before the one true God. And then the story gets kind of gruesome. David, after letting in the stone fly, he runs towards Goliath. We're told he grabs Goliath's own sword and then uses it to cut off the giant's head. Now, why would David do that? And why does the Bible include this? Well, if you go back to the way that Goliath is described, as we said, he stands before the Israelite army as kind of the personification of evil, almost like a a snake-like creature in his scaled armor. Back in Genesis 3, when God cursed the snake in the garden because he led Adam and Eve into rebellion, what did God promise that would happen to the snake one day? He promised that one day someone would come who would crush the serpent's head. And so when David cuts off Goliath's head, everyone in the Israelite army understood why he was doing it. The enemy is defeated. And this picture is an amazing foreshadowing, actually, of what the son of David would do later on on the cross. Death is defeated. The enemy is crushed. Our enemy is crushed and loses his head. And in case we're wondering whether or not David knew that he was stepping into this cosmic spiritual battle, listen to what he says when he approaches the giant in verse 46. Go to the next slide. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and then these words, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's an important phrase. The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. That sentence is at the heart of this whole story. Why does God give David the victory? That the world may know that Israel's God is the one and only true God. This is the core message. And it's this truth that was at the foundation of David's life. Out in the fields, caring for, protecting his sheep, conversing, communing with God, singing his songs, writing his poetry, tending and caring for what his dad had put him in charge of. This is what David had learned. My God is the strongest God. 
the only God. My God is the one who loves me and cares for me, and my God is the one who invites me to love and to serve him in return. And so David could walk into that terrifying valley, not because he had some vague hope that God might show up or that because his odds, uh, that his skills somehow put the odds in his favor. David could run into that valley because he knew that this is what God had prepared him for. He knew that this enemy represented everything that was evil in this world, and he knew then, therefore, that God would win this battle. He had a clear understanding of what God was up to here and a clear sense of what he had to do in response. And I love the plain summary of the story in verse 50. Go to the next slide. Where he says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And if we go to the next slide, and he did it that the world will know that there is a God. David's ability, surrendered to the leadership of God, is able to take down the enemy. And it's God, of course, in the end, who gets the honor and gets the credit for this victory. So I think about this story and, and how it interacts and intersects with my own story and invite you to do the same. Um, we were reflecting on this story with, with our preaching team, as I said, we're part of, and I was kind of talking about my thoughts about this text. And it was really interesting. One of the members of our, our team said, he said how hard they found it to relate to David because it just seemed like David as he in this story just seems so confident <laughs> like there's no fear at all he's just incredibly bold and, and I, I thought it was just a really honest statement the person said I just don't have that kind of faith I just don't always feel that kind of boldness I'm not sure I would be able to do that David just seems like living on a whole other scale of faith and I love that, because I, I can totally relate to that. Yet what's beautiful here is that David shows up with confidence and boldness not because of his own skills, even though he had them and he, and, and he knew he had them. But David shows up with confidence because he had learned that his life was enfolded into God's story. He knew God. And he knew God's heart. And he knew the things that God cared about. And more importantly, he was aware that God knew him. And that made all the difference. And so when he stumbles onto this situation that he had no idea he was going to be in when he woke up that morning, and he perceives the valley and he hears the curses of the giant, he's like, ah, oh, this is what God's been preparing me for. Let's go. We don't know what battles will God, God will throw us into. I don't know what battle you might be in right now. What we do know, even though we may not be aware of what's coming our way, is the life we have now. What, what we can be present to and aware of is what is in our control now, what we can take responsibility for now, how we choose 
to live our life today. And this is such good news for us. Because what it means is, in order for you to be ready for what God has in store for you, you don't have to have someone else's life, David's or anyone else's. You don't have to have someone else's gifts and abilities. You don't have to even have their, what you perceive as their strength of incredible faith. What it means is that every single one of our lives has value and importance to God the way it is shaped now, with the gifts, the ability, the faith, the strength you have now. And the, and the challenge and the invitation that that puts in front of us then is, how do I choose <laughs> to live my life now? How do I allow my heart to be shaped today? And I, I suspect that None of us, certainly in my city in Burlington, we don't have a lot of shepherds running around the, the suburbs, but, but we all have different experiences of life and family and school, home and work. We all have our unique place in this world. And, and in that place, we're all developing our unique skills and abilities to hone and to sharpen to the best of our ability. So our day-to-day our -day life, the things that we're doing when we wake up Monday morning and as we work through the week, those things matter to God, just as David's shepherding mattered to God and God used those skills for him. Our life matters, our skills, our abilities matter to God. So the question then becomes, how are we living our everyday life in a way that is surrendered to him? How are we offering those skills and experiences and saying, God, I'm not sure what these abilities might be used for. I'm not sure what it is or how you might be using my life now, but I'm gonna trust that if I give it to you, you will use it for your glory and you'll use it in such a way that it will bring honor to you. I'll share about this in, in a moment with the offering, but I, I've just started a, a new job at this stage of my life, <laughs> less than a month in, and I've had to reflect on this. God, how these doors you've opened for me, I'm trusting that in the way that you've been leading my life, you, you're inviting me to use the way that you've shaped me to live into this new chapter. For some of you this morning, you may be finishing high school and going to a new school in the fall. There might be some who are new parents or in a new stage of family life. Some may have just kind of moved to a new community or you've gone through some significant change in your experiences. All of that becomes part of God's preparation using your unique story in a way that can honor him. And then there's the painful things that we go through. The, the things that we wonder, God, why and how? Why would I walk through this? And, and oftentimes in that moment, we, we, we just take one step in front of the other and and, and we have a sense that God is with us, but we, we actually don't always know the, the big reasons why we go through the, these kinds of experiences, even as David had to deal with the terror of fighting off lions and bears and these crises that came his way. He had no idea how that might be used. We, we go through our own crises. 
And we discover in life's journey that those two shape us for what God brings our way. My, my last few years serving as a pastor was a, actually a very difficult season. Some of the toughest church conflicts and interpersonal stuff that happened were in those last few years of, of my ministry. And I just like, what, what a way to kind of end that chapter. But I can see now that the, the mistakes that I made in that season, the things that I learned in that season have in some way prepared me for what this next chapter is. And I see it now. I didn't understand it all then. Today you are living your life. Shape the way that God has made you. And let me say, as someone who serves, <laughs> you know, in championing the mission of the church for the Christian Reformed denomination, this, I think, is at the heart of what God's mission is. Taking what we have, our everyday skills and abilities in life and situation, and saying to God, it's yours. Use me as you will. Prepare me, whatever you want will bring my way. So whenever that moment comes, whether it's tomorrow or five years from now, I might be ready. And then when that moment comes, we know, like David, that we're able to take one of our five stones, put them in our sling and fling them with everything we've got, with all the skills that we've developed and the passion that we've been forming for God and we fling it with everything we have for his glory. Why? Not so that we win the battle, but so that the world may know that there is a God and that people will know we serve and love and honor this God. May that be true for us as individuals, may it be true for Community CRC as a church. May we do it all for the sake of the world knowing there is a God that loves this world deeply and that he gave his life so that this world would live. Let's pray together. We thank you, God, for this remarkable story that often we've received as a children's story because of the, the drama and the, the clarity of, of the dynamics that are in it. But we recognize, God, that there are lifelong lessons to be distilled from the faith, from the courage uh, of David. We continue to live um, in a world that's embattled in so many ways. We experience it at larger levels, but we also can experience it very personally. My prayer this morning is that each one of us, whether we're listening in the sanctuary or online, that we may know today that you see us, that you honor the life that you've given us now, and that you invite us to take our everyday life, surrender it to you, so that you may use us today or prepare us for whatever comes tomorrow, that the world may know that you are God. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.